says in John 12, 32, I be lifted up. I will draw all men unto me. He spoke this of his death. And he realized in dying for you that you and I would see something. You have something more to live for. He died for you because he loves you beyond more than what you will ever know. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. It says here, and it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. And he went into the house of the Lord, and he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz. Hezekiah essentially found himself in a predicament. He's got a situation, he's got a problem. And he gave word to the man of God saying, we got an issue. Put your finger there and turn now with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30 through 31. It says this, two verses today, that's it. I'm not going to keep you too long. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But... They that wait, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. How many eagles I got in here today? I got some eagles. They shall run. I got any runners in here? Anybody runners in here? And not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I want to give you some context. This is, this is actually not, let's keep it in context. We have a, I forgot to mention, we have a theologian in this place today. Sister Laura graduating from her bachelor's in theology. And that's going to make sure that we keep it tight in delivering this word here. <laughs> but here's the context I want to give you. This is Isaiah speaking, and this is not, this is not in response to what Hezekiah has said. This statement was actually made years after. It has nothing to do with Hezekiah's predicament. So he's not speaking to Hezekiah specifically, but the principle still applies. The principle still applies. And so this, this, this is the time of year in, in which our children get a good experience in exercising that, that virtue of patience. And, and many of them are, are waiting in anticipation to unwrap boxes and that have been concealing items that they've been asking for the entire year. And this, this afternoon, I, I just want to speak to you, preach to you on the title of this message is The Waiting Game. The Waiting Game. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done this time of year. We celebrate your birth, Lord, but we know that's only a fraction of what you've done, Lord, for it was your, your living, 
your dying, your resurrection, Lord. We thank you for what you've already done, but we thank you for what you're doing now and what you're going to do, Lord. And I, I pray, pray, pray for this preacher, Lord, that you would just anoint my lips to preach your word with power and anointing, with clarity. Lord Jesus, may it go forth as a two-edged sword, able to divide asunder, not just our thoughts, but we want to know our thoughts from your thoughts, our words from your words, Lord Jesus. I pray for every heart in here, Lord, that you keep the hearts open, the minds open, to receive what you have for them for the edification of your body. In Jesus' name, may the church of the living God say amen. 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 You may be seated. Nineteen twenty nineteen seventy two, a Stanford professor conducted a experiment. His experiment was on the impact of delayed gratification. You know, so what he did is he rounded up hundreds of, of four and five year olds and he rounded these kids up and he, he sent them into a room, each of them, and he gave them a marshmallow, what the researcher did. And the researcher told these four and five year olds that they were going to get one marshmallow and if they could, in fact, that the, that, that the researcher would, they would get one marshmallow to start with and, and that the researcher would leave. But if they could, in fact, wait, if they could hold out until the researcher came back, the researcher would then give them a second marshmallow. And so the researchers left the room and, and camera footage from each room showed the various reactions of the children. And, and some kids, as the researchers walked out, they just popped that marshmallow right in their mouth. Other kids could be shown on cameras trying to physically restrain themselves from eating the marshmallow. And they were wiggling in their seats and trying to, trying to hold back from eating the, eating it as it sat there. And there were some children that were able to wait the entire 15 minutes. And this became known as the marshmallow experiment. Now here, here's where this gets interesting is what they did is they, they tracked these children years later until they got into their teens. And what they found out is they found out that the children that did not give in, the ones that could delay gratification, they found out that these teens had actually had higher SAT scores. They found out that they had lower levels of substance abuse. They had better responses to stress and social skills. The researchers continued to follow each of these children well into their adulthood, and they continued to find that the children that had delayed gratification were in fact successful in whatever capacity that was being measured. Now, the natural question is why? Why? Was it instilled? Did they have this naturally? Or was in fact something that they had learned? The ability to wait, to hold out, to remain patient, the perspective to be able to see how by what you are doing or not doing can in fact benefit you in the later. Patience is in fact becoming a lost art within our culture today. We, we say we value it, okay? We, we teach our young people, we tell them to wait, wait to have sex before marriage, but we complain if, if Amazon can't get our package there on the first day. If the fast food line is too long, we pull out and go somewhere else. If the food cannot be heated within 30 seconds or a minute in the microwave, we're going to find something else to eat. We've outsmarted ourselves in the sense of our technological advancements. And what we've done is we've cut down on time, but at the same time, we've also cut down on our patience. 
There are studies, and I could go deep into this, that actually say that our attention spans are shrinking due to our advancements in technology. The ability to delay gratification is one of the most difficult disciplines that we struggle with. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn our attention back to the, the opening text because this is this I could go down a rabbit hole with this particular topic. But I, I want, we want to hear what the word of God has to say. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30 through 31, if you put it up there for me, sis. Begins by saying, even the youth shall faint and be weary. That word even, even is, is what you call an adverb. In other words, it's used to emphasize something is surprising or extreme, saying that even the youth shall faint and be weary. In other words, somebody that has an endless amounts of energy, somebody that has vigor, somebody that has pop, somebody that has patience, even they run out. Even the youth is what Isaiah says. Isaiah begins by describing the situation that has exhausted somebody that has the highest degree of natural strength and vigor by saying even, even the youth. And let me begin to bring this down this afternoon. At some point, child of God, no matter the circumstances in life are going to take their toll on you. Can I get a witness here this morning? At some point in time, you're going to find that you don't have as much vigor as you used to have, that you don't have as much bounce back that you used to be. At some point in time, the, 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 the areas that you step into, you're going to find that it's a, it takes a little bit longer to get up off the mat. At some point in time, my wife, I, I'm speaking to a situation my wife and I had, that the situation had just been so wrong for so long. The prophet says even, meaning nobody is exempt. Nobody is immune, not even the preacher, not the pastor, not the Sunday school teacher. And then he says this, he says, but. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. So here's what Isaiah does. Isaiah is going to introduce us to the, this difficult reality that we all must face. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're rich, whether you're poor. At some point in time, child of God, you're going to find yourself in the waiting room. You're going to find yourself where your, your prayers are not being answered as quickly as you thought they were going to be. You're going to find that, that, that things are not going as well. The hopes and the dreams that you had are not materializing the way you had figured that they were. Isaiah's focus really isn't on the waiting. He says everybody is going to wait. We're all at some point in time going to find ourselves waiting on something, having expectation for something. The Bible says that hope deferred what? Makes the heart sick. It makes it sick. At some point in time, we're all going to be there. But what Isaiah is going to say is, who or what are you waiting for? Who are you waiting on? You see, some of us in here, we're waiting on the wrong things. We're waiting on that person that did me wrong to say, to come and say, I'm sorry. And for everything to be made right, when, when what God is waiting for you to do is, he's waiting for you to forgive that person, whether the relationship is restored or not. 
We're waiting till we can build up enough confidence to talk to somebody about Jesus. We're waiting till our circumstances change before we can step out in faith. But what Isaiah says is those folks whose mindset is about waiting on God, not waiting for their circumstances to change. They're waiting on God to give them a direction of what to do, whether the circumstances change or not. They shall renew their strength. That word renew has the prefix re. In other words, they will be strengthened again. Their joy is going to be full again. Their hope, their vigor. It's to renew means to go back to the original state as if it was before. Because the Bible says... Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But when the desire cometh, it is as a, 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 a tree of life. There's something about when you get what you've been praying for, which you've been asking for, which you've been hoping for, it does something to you. All of a sudden, you feel like you can live again. You can step out again. The confidence gets a little bit higher. Those anxieties that you had, you can begin to subside those. There's something about when he answers a prayer, you know I'm right back in the game. Can I get a witness here? here's what I want to turn our attention to this afternoon I want to turn your attention not only to what Isaiah wrote about waiting on God but I want to turn your attention to really what qualified him to write this we're going to shift gears for a second Isaiah is, is his name means actually salvation of Jehovah Isaiah himself is one of four major prophets. And what we mean by major is this, is that you have, if you take a look at your scripture and you turn toward the Old Testament, when you get toward the latter half of the Old Testament, you're going to find all these men with these funny names. Okay, We call them major and minor prophets. Now, they're, they're major and minor prophets not simply because they're more important, but we call them major prophets essentially because they wrote more. Their ministries lasted longer. That's why we call them major prophets. And because of that, because of Isaiah had been able to sit into a place where having seen a lot of things, having seen people's relationships go up and people's relationships go down, he is sitting here from a perspective of being able to say, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And so what it is, is Isaiah's vantage point that allows, that gives him the qualifications to write this. It's the same as when David said in Psalm 37, 25, he said, I've been young and now I'm old. But, but I, I, He's David saying, I've been around for a little bit. I've seen some things in my time. He's saying, look, the the, the way you look at things at 18 is not the same way you look at them at 35. The way you look at them at 35 is not the same way you look at them at 45 or 65. David's saying, I've seen this thing from multiple vantage points. Okay, but then he says, says, but, in other words, everything you thought I had seen all these differences. I've seen it, but there's one thing that's remained consistent. It didn't matter whether I was old. didn't matter whether I was young. It didn't matter. I was middle-aged. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. I've never seen somebody serving God. That's been let down. Never seen anyone forsaken. That's been a right relationship with him. David says, "Uh uh-uh, I've never seen it. I don't care that whether I was young or whether I was old. I ain't never seen anybody that's in right standing with God being left alone. That's just a disclaimer. He will never let you down. And so Isaiah's statement that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength is founded in his ministry going over 40 years. And during this time period, he's been able to see a couple of things. And one of the things he's been able to see is he's been able to actually be a spiritual advisor to a king by the name of Hezekiah. 
And it's, it's, we're going to go back to the opening text because in our opening text, we're going to take a look at Hezekiah's predicament in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 1 through 2. And I'm going to read this for you. It says, and it came to pass when Hezekiah, King Hezekiah heard it, that he ran his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. And he went to the house of the Lord and he sent Elikiah, which is over the household and Shibna the scribe and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz. And here's the, the task of what I feel tasked you to do this afternoon is, is we're going to begin to examine the ins and outs of Hezekiah's situation and begin to draw some application. But before we do, I need to give you some context here. Text without context is no text at all. King Hezekiah's reign starts at Judah. And remember at this time period, Israel has been split into two. You have ten tribes in the north. You have two tribes in the south. Hezekiah is ruling over those two tribes called Judah. During this time period, the Assyrian Empire is the world power. The Assyrians have been on a rampage conquering nation after nation after nation for centuries. They've conquered Israel 134 years before they actually conquered Judah, before Judah fell. And at this time, the Assyrian war machine is marching down, conquering everybody in their path. They absolutely dominated the entire Old Testament. And everyone in their path tried to form alliances. That didn't work. The Assyrians simply rolled right over them. Okay, at this point in time in the juncture, the Bible's told us that the Assyrians have moved in and they've laid siege to a city called Lachish. Lachish is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And that now they've showed up at the door of Hezekiah's place right outside of Jerusalem. Everyone that withstood them lost. And the reason they lost is because there are a variety of different reasons of, of why the Assyrians were so dominant in the Old Testament times. One of the reasons, frankly, is they had superior weapons. Everyone else was, was fighting with weapons of bronze while the Assyrians used iron. The second reason was, is simply this, is that the, the Assyrians, they worked by intimidation. They were ruthless. They were absolutely brutal. Some of the analysts say that they, what they would do is when they would conquer nations, they would actually practice impaling, meaning they would take a soldier and they would shish kebab him, impale him on a, on a, a post and put him outside and they would have strings of bodies. And they did this in order to intimidate you. One of the reasons that I, I'm really big on this, but when you read the story of Jonah, the story of Jonah has oftentimes been characterized as this kiddish story of Jonah and the whale. Okay, if we think of Jonah as a stumbling, bumbling, foolish little prophet that did, didn't want to go to Nineveh. That, that, that's accurate. That is accurate. But, but the stumbling, bumbling part is not accurate. When you understood that the reason why Jonah, the, the reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, okay, if you understand the basis of what those Assyrians were doing, you understand perfectly well. Jonah, when Jonah got the word that it's time to go to Nineveh, he's no, no, no. They were cruel, wicked. It's likely that Jonah saw a lot of his own countrymen and the people around him suffer under the Assyrian reign. But the third reason why they were so successful is that the Assyrians had all but perfected and implemented this tactic called siege warfare. And what siege warfare was in the most simplistic way is that the enemy would, in fact, essentially surround the city with a massive army, army and try to show you force. 
they try to show you numbers. And it's really what it is. It's a large-scale waiting game. They would surround the city and cut off the supplies of anything coming in or anything going out. Now, this is a military strategy, but it has multiple layers, and we're going to be able to get into this a little bit. And this is where I want to open up with Hezekiah's story in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. It says this. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshiki with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. Sennacherib is going to do this. He's going to send a large army. He's going to send a force, but he's also going to send another aspect. He sends Assyrian negotiators to the city of Jerusalem where Hezekiah is. He sends this great army, and what it is, it's a show of force. He would, they would send this to intimidate you, that the sheer sight of all of these soldiers would begin to send you and distort your reality. In World War II, Hitler would do this in the Blitzkriegs, and what the Blitzkriegs were was Hitler would fly in, and all of a sudden, within minutes, European nations, their, their, their countries would be occupied by German tanks and soldiers. And all of a sudden your streets would be completely wiped out. That's what Hitler did. And it would distort the, the countries. They would, it would distort their reality. They'd be essentially be shell shocked. The Assyrians would send the, the, the armies and they would surround Jerusalem in the sense to almost shell shock their opponent. Let me tell you, this is happening today. You know, our culture today, we're being bombarded and saturated with ungodly lifestyles to the point where it makes absolutely no sense. Where all of a sudden you begin to think, how did we get here? Pronouns don't mean what they mean. We're getting bombarded to the point where you, you almost think that you have lost your mind. Like, where, where how did we get from here to there. This is exactly the issue that Elisha's servant had when the Ar- Armenians surrounded the city as he began to, to, to give in to his anxieties and finally Elisha had to tap him on the shoulder and say, look, look, we're not surrounded. They're surrounded. Here's what I want to speak to somebody today. Some of you in this afternoon this, are suffering from a constant bombardment from the enemy. But I'm here to tell you this afternoon, all it is is window dressing. All it is is posturing. All it is is done to distort your reality. All it is is to show a show of force without no power. Okay, that's all it is. What they would do is they would do this because the next step, what the enemy would do after they showed the force was then to send in the second piece, and that was the negotiator. They were sending the negotiator, and this is what happens in Second Kings chapter eighteen, verse nineteen. We're gonna we're gonna read this, and it says, "Rabshiki said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours?" The negotiator is going to ask Hezekiah and the people of God, who are you trusting in your trials and your circumstances and the enemy will get you to take a look in your waiting period and ask yourself who are you trusting in who are you hoping on we're going to continue to read because watch this he's sly he's slick second kings chapter 18 verse 21 through 23 he says now behold thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed even upon egypt on which a man lean, 
It will go into his hand and pierce it. So Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. Next verse here. But if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah taken away and I've said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? 23. Now, therefore, I pray thee, give pledges to the Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee 2,000 horses if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. Here's what he does. The enemy sends in the negotiator, and what the negotiator says, he says, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting Egypt? What is Egypt going to do for you? We've already destroyed them. We've already conquered them. We've already beat them. Now, here's the interesting part about this, and I find this fascinating, because oftentimes what will happen is what the enemy will do in your life is he will come in, and he will begin to point out not only the deficiencies that you and I have, but he will begin to point out the deficiencies in others, your brethren around you. And so oftentimes what it has happened is I have to look to you, my brothers and sisters, to draw a strength from your testimony and know that if God did it for you, he can in fact do it for me. But what the enemy wants to do is he wants to destroy the testimony of everybody in here so you and I don't have anything to look to and anything to draw from. So he says, are you trusting in Egypt? But watch this. this continue this on. He goes on and he begins to continue on and he says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. And this is absolutely cunning. Watch this. Watch this. Hezekiah was the, the one of all, one of two kings of, Ju- of Judah that actually led a authentic what we call spiritual reform. He actually led the nation. He had led the people back into authentic worship of God. He broke down the high places. He began to restore the the, the, the holidays. He began to repair the house of God. And the, what the Assyrian negotiator is trying to do is he's trying to take all of the sacrifice, all of the progress that they have made, and tie it in with their current circumstances to get them to begin to think about you just made all this spiritual reformations you just made all these strides you just hate me you just you just stepped into this new place with god and now look at you look at you you just started going to church and now look your car broke down you just started giving to the church and now you're in financial strain you left michigan preacher and you came to milwaukee and now look at you you left folks, you let folks in the job know that you were a Christian and now they're walking all over you. Any godly spiritual reform or change that you and I make, what the enemy will attempt to do is he will get you to associate your sacrifice and your change with your current frustrations and difficulties. And he will tie that in to get you to negotiate to change your standards. 
That's a, it's a nasty trick. But as soon as you start making a change for God, as soon as you start stepping out and doing stuff, things begin to fall apart for you. And they fall apart on purpose because what he's going to do is he's going to point to your current situation and state. He's going to point to your uh, the change that you tried to make. And he's going to try to tie those two together to, in fact, get you to doubt your faith. And that's exactly what the Assyrian negotiator is doing at this moment. Any godly change, okay, and hear me now, this is why I believe today the enemy, we're seeing so much bombardment in our culture today because he's pressing on every single side. He knows his time is short. He knows nothing is sacred. Nothing is neutral. But do not compromise. Don't compromise. Okay, when the enemy came to Jesus, what did Jesus tell him? He said, shut up. Shut up. There's no negotiation here. And there's no negotiation here. Do not compromise what God has already given to you. Enemy works by intimidation, negotiation. And third thing that the Syrians would try to do is penetration. Can you put the pick up? The Syrians were one of the first armies to actually begin to develop what we call siege machines. And what these siege machines were was essentially what they attempted to do was try to breach the city. And they would roll these siege machines up to the city walls and try to breach the walls in a variety of different ways. Okay, If you can see there, the siege machines up front, what they would do essentially is roll these things right up. And underneath the canopy, they would have employ slaves to pack earth and pack stones against the wall. And what they actually did at Lachish is they managed to build a ramp so that they could just simply go right over the top. If they couldn't get over the top, what they would try to do is simply, they had a battering ram and they would try to ram the gates and go through those gates and breach the walls. They actually then begin to implore this engineers to try to go underneath and they would try to penetrate by any means necessary. And that's why we have to get a, get a hold of the fact that if he cannot intimidate you, if he cannot negotiate with you, he will try every which way to get at you through your family, on your job, your home, your friends, nothing is sacred. Nothing. We're going to shift gears here because I want to highlight another component of this narrative. And I want to recap for you. The Assyrians have laid siege to Jerusalem. They sent out negotiators to talk and to taunt Hezekiah. The army has surrounded the city. And we're at this point now in the the story of Hezekiah's situation, and we're at this, this waiting game portion. It's a standoff. There, there, there's another setback that's going to take place. Uh, and I, I want to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. And here's, here's the setback. If you think things have not gotten bad, things are about to get worse. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1 says, In, in those days Hezekiah was sick unto death. In, in what days? 
What's saying is that in the days of the siege, in the days of his waiting period, Hezekiah actually got sick. During the siege itself, okay, Hezekiah got sick. But I'm, I'm going I'm to present this to you, and I'm going to give you some reasoning why, okay? I don't just believe that Hezekiah got sick during the siege. I actually believe that Hezekiah got sick because of the siege. And I'm going to tell you why in a second here. One of the things we talk about siege warfare, one of the factors that happened for the cities within is oftentimes what happened is you had the people in the countryside begin to come into the city for protection because the enemy armies that were invading. Because of that, you had an increase in population inside of the city. And so when you had an increase of population, you would oftentimes have an increase of pestilence and plague. Anytime you, you take a look around here, okay, we're all on top of each other. One kid gets sick. If they, if they sit right in front of you or right around you, it's just a matter of time, okay? Somebody else getting sick. You shook somebody else's hands, you getting sick, okay? And so when you have these situations in which the city's population begin to swell, the pandemics or pestilence begin to spread like wildfire. This is actually what happened during World War I when we had trench warfare. Many of the soldiers that actually died in World War I didn't die. Some died from gas, but a lot of them died from the fleas and the rats and the pestilence that was being spread all about. The second reason why pestilence would oftentimes spread is usually under a siege. When you talk about being within close confines to purse people for extended periods of times, when it's the siege got so bad, when the waiting period got so long, what would happen is oftentimes on the list, what they weren't doing is they were not properly burying people. And so you had bodies that would be decomposing during these siege time periods, but they would not be having proper burial. And so pestilence would run rampant. Now, here's what I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you what Hezekiah's exact sickness was, but what we can confer from, from the scriptures is that the confrontation with the king of Assyria, the waiting game, it took its toll on him. How many here can relate to that waiting game taking its toll on you? You get up and go has gotten up and gone. You just don't have the same pop as you used to. The waiting period has been so long, it's left you bruised, it's left you broken, it's left you confused. And I want to begin to bring this, I'm going to wrap this to a close, but I'm here to tell you God is not condemning you. In fact, let me begin to tell you that God is drawing near to you. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. It may seem like he's far away in these moments, but he is closer than ever. And he wants to do something remarkable in your life, something astounding in your life that will make your ears tingle, that will make your toes curl. The Bible says that Hezekiah comes in his brokenness and he reaches an utter dependence on God. And the Bible says that night, that night, 185,000, one angel went into the camp of the Assyrian soldiers and wiped out 185,000 soldiers delivering this king from his enemy. But I want to get back to something I said before, and I want to get back to this. Is Here's what I'm trying to articulate today, child of God. Here's the caution I have for you. Sometimes within the waiting period, some of you will get sick. Within the waiting periods that you find yourself in life, within those periods in which you're waiting for an answer from God and the tears seem to flow and you still haven't gotten answers. Those time periods you say, I'm stuck and I don't know what to do. Be careful. Do not 
get sick. Do not let the waiting period in your life make you sick. Remember, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. And within our waiting periods, sometimes what begins to happen is bitterness begins to set in. Can I get a witness? Maybe I'm just talking to myself. A sense of cynicism begins to come through our lips. All of a sudden during the waiting time, okay, we get apathetic with things. We just don't care anymore. Hope deferred. Make it the heart sick. I'm going to pray with you. We're going to pray this this afternoon. And my prayer in closing this afternoon is that during your period of waiting, that God not only shows up in your siege, not just in your waiting period, but God also begins to work and heal you on any bitterness, any cynicism, anything that has caused you to be sick during this period. I'm going to close here. Let's stand. I told you that I would bring this thing full circle, and I'm going to do it right now. Years later, the University of Rochester, they repeated the marshmallow study. They, they did it again. Except they did it with a little bit different twist. They split these children up into two groups, and, and what they did was they had one group, and they didn't do it with marshmallows, but they did it with some other things. They, they gave the children... Uh, they went in there and told the children that they, the first group, they did this. They, they went in there and told them they would give them some crayons. And, and uh, they said, you know, if you wait here for 15 minutes, I, 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 we'll return back and we'll give you some more crayons. But with the first group, the researchers never came back. And they came in again and said, we're going to do another study with stickers. And they, they gave the children one sticker and they told them that we'll be back, but they never came back. But with the second group, they gave them crayons and stickers. And, and as, as they gave them the stickers, they said, if you wait 15 minutes, we'll, we'll be back and we'll give you, give you crayons and stickers. And, and they, they actually returned. Second group, they returned and they gave them the, the crayons and stickers that they promised if they could hold out. What they then, then did is they then did the marshmallow study with both groups. And what they found out is they found out that The children whose trust had been broken, those previous tests, were the children who gave in and ate the marshmallow. And let me, let me begin to, to just articulate this afternoon is that some of you in here are just like those four and five-year-old children. Your trust has been broken. It's been broken early on. You've had family members that have let you down. You've had fathers that have walked out on you. You've had friends that have left you. And so at this stage in the game, the reason for your gratification is, is not simply just, just because, because you have no, no, no will or anything like that. It's because your trust has been broken. But I'm here, this preacher's here this afternoon to tell you that there's, there's one you can put your trust in. There's one that you can put your hope in. 
And he's here today. He's here this afternoon. He says in Isaiah 42, 3, he says, a, a, a bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking flask he won't put out. I'm not, I'm not calling you to this altar to trust in me, but I'm calling you to trust in somebody that will never let you down. I know you've, you've had circumstances that have, that have not, not been the best. You've had family situations and upbringing that have left you skittish. But the ability to wait, the ability to delay gratification, he's here in this room this afternoon. He's saying, will you trust me? He's saying, I, I've died for you. I've shed my blood for you. Will you trust me? And I'm going to pray for you this afternoon that, that, that your trust be restored. Not, not your trust in me, not your, not, not your trust in the system, not your trust in the man, but your trust in him. This altar's open. This altar's open.